We've been making our way through the book of Hebrews verse by verse for, for a good while. In fact, it may surprise you or it may not surprise you that uh, we have been in Hebrews now for 22 months. We come this morning to the 13th chapter, so the end is in sight. Now, if you're new at the chapel, you may be saying, well, this is the last chapter. I mean, uh, the real content has been covered. All the meat has been picked off the bone. It's kind of like the party's over and now in the 13th chapter, he's just going to kind of sweep up and turn out the lights. You know, as I look at this 13th chapter and as I've read it and studied it more closely, I find that it's not just tacked on to the end of the book of Hebrews. It's not just a postscript. It's not just an appendix that has nothing to do with the rest of the letter. It's not just an afterthought. In fact, I would go so far as to say that chapter 13 is the climax of the book of Hebrews. You say, well, wait a minute, Dan. I think you're getting a little carried away. Well, what is the purpose of doctrine? Why is it in the New Testament that the writers spend so much time explaining to us the truth relative to the things of God? Is it just so we'll know? Is it just so we'll have knowledge? Is God going to give us a test one day in Bible knowledge? No. It's so that we will act on it. Paul, for one, almost always presents doctrine and then duty. He tells us our position And then He challenges us with our practice. He tells us what we're to believe and then He tells us how we are to behave. He establishes the truth and then on the basis of that truth, He exhorts us to act. We see it in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters are doctrine. And then we get to chapter 12 and He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then the last five chapters are duty. The book of Ephesians is that way. The first three chapters are about our position. The last three chapters are about our practice. In the first three chapters, we are in Christ, seated in the heavenlies. In the last three chapters, Christ is in us, walking on the earth. And so before we're told to do something in the New Testament, we're given a doctrinal foundation on which to stand. Duty is founded on doctrine. Behavior flows out of our belief. Practice follows an understanding of our position. And the writer of Hebrews is no different. If you turn back to chapter 10 and verse 18, you can draw a line in chapter 10 between verses 18 and 19. Because from chapter 1 through chapter 10 and verse 18, it's essentially doctrine with several warning passages interjected throughout. We're told that Christ is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses, to Abraham, to Aaron. He has a greater priesthood, a greater covenant, a greater tabernacle, a greater sacrifice. And then we get to chapter or verse 19 of chapter 10 and he says, Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near verse 23, let us hold fast verse 24, let us consider. And then he goes on in this chapter and particularly in verse 36 to call us 
to endurance. And then in chapter 11, we have illustrations of enduring faith. And then followed by another call to endurance in chapter 12, where he says that we are to run the race with endurance. And then he breaks into some further teaching on discipline in chapter 12, followed by the final warning passage at the end of chapter 12, a comparison of Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. And then we come to chapter 13 and we get the particular exhortations that we as believers are to follow. We get our duties. We get the instructions on how to conduct ourselves. So having shown that Christ is superior to everything in the Old Testament, that the new covenant is better than the old covenant, having warned these Jews who were riding the fence to come to Christ, and having challenged the believers to endure and run the race, he now in chapter 13 gives us, if you like, the race course. He lays out the track in terms of exhortations. And so Hebrews chapter 13 is the climax. It's the conclusion. Here's the doctrine. Now here's how you ought to live. And the first subject the writer deals with in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13 is love. And I want to pick out five things this morning about love in these three verses. They're listed in your bulletin. Number one is the command of love. Look at verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Now, some of you are saying, preach it, brother. My wife needs to hear this. My kids need to hear this. I, Lord, I pray that they're paying attention today. What about you? You say, well, I, I really don't need this message because I'm basically a loving person. Just kind of part of my nature. I think it was Snoopy who said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. We all love mankind, but do you love your wife? Do you love your kids? Do you love that difficult family member? Some, everybody's got one. Do you love everybody in this church? And how do they know? You say, yeah, I love them all. I love mankind. How do they know that you love them? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient. Do you get irritated at them? Love is kind. What kind thing did you do for them? In this past week. Love does not seek its own. Are you selfish? Love is not provoked. Do you get angry? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't keep books and records of wrongs done to it. Have you forgiven them? This is one of the 55 times in the New Testament that we are commanded to love. And why are we commanded to love so often? Because we need this message. All of us. 
Now, these Hebrew Christians weren't doing too bad in this area. If you turn back in your Bible to chapter 6 of Hebrews, the writer says something interesting to them in that chapter. Chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. They had been doing well at loving one another, but now he exhorts them, he commands them to make sure it continues. You know, we like to think that love is spontaneous and effortless. It just kind of happens. But the reality is that love is not automatic. That's why we're commanded 55 times in the New Testament to do it. And even if you are doing it, you can do it more. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, For indeed you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. We all need this message. Love is an oft-repeated command to all of us. You don't just wait around for love to happen. Love is not something you wait around to fall into. Jesus said at the Last Supper in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. So the first point is the command of love. Second point is the confirmation of love. Notice verse 1 again. Let love of the brethren continue. Now, love is a natural characteristic of every family. And that's certainly true in the family of God. In fact, this phrase, love of the brethren, is one word in the Greek. It's it's a word you're familiar with. It's the Greek word Philadelphia. Phileo, love, delphos, brother. It means love for those from the same womb. Everyone who has been born again into the family of God is a child of God. And earlier in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We're family. We're all one in the family of God. We're brothers. And what do brothers do? Well, sometimes they fight a lot, but they love each other. But see, you can't have brotherly love if you're not a brother. So this exhortation really confirms to us, this love really confirms to us who we are. You see, it confirms, first of all, to the world that I'm Jesus' disciple. Because Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And so it confirms to the world that I'm Jesus' disciple, but it also confirms to me that I'm Jesus' disciple. 
First John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. One of the things that gives me the assurance of my salvation is the fact that I love the children of God. Jesus said in John 17.14 that the world will hate you. And I realize that I'm a believer because God has allowed me the capacity to love those that I used to hate. And so this is why the subject of love is so important. It's a testimony to the world of who I am. And love is a testimony to me of who I am. It's a confirmation. And then the third point is the continuance of love. Look at verse 1 again. Let love of the brethren continue. Now notice how he says this. He doesn't say, get brotherly love started. Whip up some brotherly love. Invent some brotherly love. Generate some brotherly love. No. What does he say? Let brotherly love continue. You see... Brotherly love comes natural to newborn Christians. Or I probably should say that this way. Brotherly love comes supernaturally natural to newborn Christians. We just have to let it continue. It's already been established. We just have to keep it. We just have to not destroy it and not wreck it. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Ephesians 4.3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity is already established by the Spirit. We just have to preserve it. We just have to keep it. The love is already there. We just have to let it continue. Jesus prayed in John 17, and there's a part of His prayer that always amazes me. It's right at the end of His prayer. He says this in John 17, 26. He prays that the love that the Father had for Him would be in me. That's a big prayer request. That the very love that God the Father has for His Son would be in me. And guess what? It is. Because Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts. We just have to let it flow out to other people. We just have to let that love continue. Now, if the love of God has been poured out in my heart, why isn't it more evident flowing out to other people? What is it that's stopping the love of God? I think the problem we have is that we plug it up. Somebody once said that Christians need some spiritual Drano. We've plugged up the love of God. We need to let it continue. We need to let it flow out to other people. Now, let me ask you this. What is it that's stopping... What is it that's hindering? What is it that's plugging up the love of God in your life to keep it from flowing out to other people? 
Well, let me suggest some things. Number one, and the most obvious to me, would be selfishness. Selfishness plugs up the love of God. Love doesn't flow through selfishness. In fact, selfishness is really the very opposite of love. My definition of biblical love is that love is desiring the very best for the other person, no matter what it costs me, and expecting nothing in return. That's what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross desiring the very best for you and me, eternal life, no matter what it cost him, his life, and expecting nothing in return. It's unconditional. It's a gift. Selfishness desires the very best for me, no matter what it costs you, and expects plenty in return. Before the Good Samaritan stopped and showed compassion to the man who had been beaten and robbed, a priest and a Levite passed him by on the other side. Jesus told that story and then He asked an important question afterward. He said, which of the three was loving his neighbor as himself? And the answer was, just one, the Samaritan. Now those other two guys probably had some good reasons. They had plenty of excuses. i got somewhere important to go. I'm on my way to the temple and I can't touch this Samaritan or I'll be defiled. Whatever their excuse may be, didn't really matter. Because in Jesus' book, they weren't loving. Because of selfishness. They put their own needs ahead of someone else's. Brotherly love, according to 1 John 3.16, is laying down my life for my brother. It's giving of myself to meet the needs of my brother. It's Philippians 2.3, regarding others as more important than myself. And the thing that prevents that and destroys that and wrecks that brotherly love is self-love. I stop this love from continuing by selfishness. By loving myself more than my brother. James chapter 4 asks the question, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. What's he saying? The source of quarrels is selfishness. You take two three-year-olds and put them in a room with one toy, and what happens? There's a conflict because both of them are saying, Mine. Well, the same principle that applies to you at three years old applies to you at 33 years old. Because when you have quarrels, the source of those quarrels is selfishness. When I become like Terrell Owens saying, I loves me some me, love won't flow. Selfishness plugs up love. 
Would you take a moment and think about your plans for today, for this week, for the rest of this year? As you look at your plans, who are you thinking about? Who are you looking out for? Who are you trying to please? Are your plans all about me and mine? You see, if you're going to let love continue, you have to get self out of the way. You have to die to self to unplug the love of God to flow out of you. So the first thing that stops up love is selfishness. The second thing is pride. Pride plugs up love really quickly. Now I think about the disciples at the Last Supper. The Bible says as they were having that supper together and it was the night before Jesus was going to die, it says that the disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest. That's why they passed by the water container by the door, the, the customary place where they were to wash feet. You see, they walked by it because they said, I'm too important to wash anybody else's feet. And so they sit at the table with proud hearts and dirty feet. And those two always go together. And then Jesus got up from the table, laid aside His garments, took a towel and a basin, and stooped and washed the disciples' feet. Jesus loved them. And love requires humility. Love won't flow through pride. You see, pride allows me to say, well, that person is such a jerk that I don't have to love them. Pride allows me to say, I'm right and he's wrong. So I don't have to apologize. In fact, I don't even have to forgive him. Pride makes me a Pharisee. A Pharisee sets up my own standards and then judges others who don't keep my standards. Let me tell you something. If you want to practice brotherly love, you have to stop judging others and constantly judge your own pride. Third thing that plugs up love, and this could be a very long list. I'm cutting it short. You can add to it later. The third is impatience. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. And so on. And I don't think it's an accident that enlisting the qualities of love, Paul puts patience first. Love is patient. That one stops me in my tracks. That word patience literally means being long-tempered. It's having a long fuse. And why is that the first quality of love? Because people can get on your nerves. People will wrong you 
They will offend you. They will insult you. People are not always lovable. And impatience wants to retaliate. Patience doesn't. Patience is Jesus hanging on the cross, being mocked and mistreated and humiliated and wrongly put to death, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. How long is your fuse? Impatience plugs up love. Let me give you a third thing. Or fourth thing. Loving the world plugs up love. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's pretty direct. If I love the world, God's love is not in me. And if God's love is not in me, it's obviously not flowing out to anyone else. Now, what's it mean to love the world? Well, listen to the next verse. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. You know, the world's not that complicated. There's only three things in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh is pleasure. The lust of the eyes, possessions. The boastful pride of life prestige. If I am loving those things, it's very obvious to me that I'm not going to love my brothers. If I'm loving and desiring pleasure, I'm not going to be desiring the very best for you. If I'm loving the world's things, I'm going to be stingy and unwilling to give them to those in need. If I am after the world's praise and acclaim, I'm not going to be thinking about how others feel. Love of the world plugs up brotherly love. And then let me give you a fifth one and a final one. A sectarian spirit plugs up love. You know, for some reason, God chose to save people that I don't agree with on every point of doctrine. I wish He had talked to me first before He chose to do that. Because it's a challenge to disagree with someone and still love them. It's easier to write them off. Kind of like the guy they found on a deserted island and they were surprised to see that he had built three huts. He said, that first hut is my house and that second hut, that's where I go to church. They said, well, what's the third hut? He said, that's where I used to go to church. He couldn't even get along with himself. It's okay to change churches for the right reason, but you still have to love those people. A sectarian spirit says, we four no more shut the door. 
A sectarian spirit says we are the true body of Christ and everybody else is of the devil. A sectarian spirit says if I can get my circle of brothers small enough, maybe I can fulfill this command. I love everyone who agrees with me. You know, it's James and John in Luke chapter 9 when a village in Samaria wouldn't receive them. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? We have a lot of Rambo Christians. Let's just bomb the other churches. Because they don't quite agree with us. I used to have a professor who said, your feet should be as narrow as the Word of God. And your arms should be as wide as the body of Christ. That's our stance. We stand on the truth of the Word of God, but we embrace all who call Jesus Lord. Selfishness, pride, impatience, Loving the world, a sectarian spirit. What is it that's plugging up the love of God in your life? Let brotherly love continue. And then fourth, we see the capacity of love in verse 2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now that phrase, hospitality to strangers, is also one word. It's the Greek word, philoxenia. Philo or phileo is love. Xenia means strangers. So it's the love of strangers. It's really the same kind of word as the first word. The, the, the word in verse 1 is brother love, brotherly love. The, the word in verse 2 is stranger love. So, not only am I to love my brothers, I'm to love strangers. This is the capacity of our love. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we are to love our enemies. You say, well, Dan, I tried that and I got burned. Well, join the club. But don't get sour on love. You see, I can guarantee you that love will always get stepped on. All you have to do is look at Jesus and what happened to Him. He so loved the world that we put Him to death. Are you one who loves strangers? Do you open up your home to guests? Are you given to hospitality? Do you invite strange preachers out to lunch? I'll let you meditate on that one second. Will you stop and help a stranger with a flat tire? Do you get involved in other people's lives? Do you reach out beyond your own family? Needs. See, a church can't grow unless we love strangers. 
But the good thing is that we only have to show hospitality to strangers once. And then they're not strangers anymore. And this is something that we easily forget to do. We tend to focus our lives on ourselves and our family and our friends and our little cliques. And we establish those things. And we call hospitality inviting my friend over, knowing that my friend is going to invite me back to reciprocate. But that's not really hospitality. Hospitality means loving strangers. It's inviting somebody I don't know who may never invite me back. And we often neglect to do that because he says in verse 2, do not neglect it. He's rattling our cage to tell us this is something we need to focus on. I minored in psychology. I remember studying. They, they said that you can, the normal person can only remember 200 names. And because you can only remember 200 names, that after 200 names, you just start stereotyping people. You, you can't add to your list of names. So you, you just go in and the grocery clerk is just the grocery clerk. And, and, and so you, you stereotype people. And, and that's easy for us to do. We say, well, I've got my 200 names. I can't add any more to that. So I'll just stereotype everybody else. But that's not what God is calling us to do. When I meet somebody I don't know, I'm not just to find out their name. I'm to love that person. That's what this verse is calling us to. And it gives us a motive. Notice verse 2. Do not neglect to love strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Hmm. By entertaining strangers, some have entertained angels. Now, be careful here. This is not a promise that you will. This is a statement that some have. He's probably thinking about Abraham, for one, back in Genesis chapter 18, when three men came to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, and he showed hospitality to them. It turned out to be two angels and the pre-incarnate Christ. So what he's saying is, when you show hospitality to strangers, you never know who you might be entertaining. I heard about a fellow years ago who stopped and helped a lady with a flat tire on the side of the highway. and She asked for his name and he gave her his name. And shortly thereafter, a color television was delivered to his house. And there was a note attached that said, thank you, Mrs. Nat King Cole. Sometimes when you, now I'm not suggesting you go out to the highway and look for the nice cars. Sometimes when you show love to strangers, you don't know who you're entertaining. Now, I can't guarantee you that somebody's going to do that, but I, let me give you a greater encouragement. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that one day I'm going to say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And we're going to say, well, when did we do that? And he's going to say, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, 
You did it to me. When you're showing love to a stranger in need, you're entertaining Jesus. That's pretty good incentive. And then the fifth point is the compassion of love. In verse 3, he says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. The exhortation is to remember. Remember who? Remember those in prison. But not just, hey, think about them every once in a while. He says, remember them as if you were there with them. Empathize with them. Be just as concerned about them as you would be if you were in prison. And remember those who are ill-treated, who are suffering. Why? Notice the end of verse 3. Since you yourselves also are in the body. Now, he may be saying because you're in a physical body and you know what it's like to suffer. Or he may be talking about the body of Christ. Because you're in the body of Christ, the Bible tells you you're to rejoice with those who rejoice and you're to weep with those who weep. We are all part of the body and when one part suffers, we should all suffer with that one member. So who is he talking about in verse 3? He's talking about people who are often out of sight. Somebody's in prison, we don't see them around because they're in prison. When someone's ill-treated or suffering, oftentimes they're out of sight. And oftentimes out of sight, out of mind. And so he says, remember those people and care for those people. Many times when we find out about people in need, we say, well, I've got enough problems of my own without taking on somebody else's problems. Well, you know what that is? That's pure selfishness. And that is the opposite of love. And you know the best way to overcome that attitude? Do exactly what he's telling us in this verse. Get involved in the lives of people who are really suffering, and then your problems won't seem so bad. You talk to one of the guys that goes to the jail or the prison. When they come back, I'm sure they're not saying, you know, I got an ingrown toenail and it's really bothering me. Really frustrated about it. I'm going to put it on the prayer chain. When you deal with someone who's got real problems and you start to minister to them and their problems, what you call problems aren't so bad anymore. I love it when I go to the hospital and I have to wait to get in the room because people are lined up to minister to people. I love it when I go to the funeral home to visit and I have to wait in a long line because people are there to minister to those people. That's what he's talking about here. Those that are hurting, those that are ill-treated, those that are in prison. Now, he's not talking about just people that are in prison for doing wrong. In this case, it's people who are being persecuted for their faith that he's talking about. I love what Job said in Job 29, 15, and 16. He says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. And the cause which I knew not, I searched out. I love that. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, a father to the poor, and those causes I didn't know about, I ran around to find out about them. I was an answer 
looking for a question. I was a solution searching for a problem. May God help us to have that same kind of ambition. I have a solution and I'm looking for a problem that I can help meet. Love your brothers. Love strangers. Love that person who is hurting and easily forgotten. That's the first step in practical Christianity.